Sometimes he wonders what he is doing there among his betters. He is lucky beyond desert to be in such company. Those are the golden sessions, when our drinks are at our elbows, when the whole world and something beyond the world opens itself to our minds as we talk. This is Pints with Jack, Season 5, Episode 31, The Four Loves, Retrospective. Good morning, everyone. Pints with Jack is your favorite weekly C.S. Lewis podcast where three friends, Andrew, David, and Matt, break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. And this season, we're talking about love, slowly and deliberately working our way through The Four Loves, the book where Lewis writes about affection, friendship, romance, and charity, which we have now finished. And so today is an episode where we look back on The Four Loves in a retrospective. Gentlemen, how's everyone doing? Well, um, I have you know good news on my front. I'm working on a chapter right now um, on clarity and charity for uh, an upcoming publication. Uh, my wife just finished writing her eighty-something book, um, <laughs> and then while finishing it up, uh, received contracts or or was approached for several more, through two or three more books to write. So. Uh, just got a shipment in the mail today of publicity stills, black and white publicity stills from from uh, the Shadowlands movie, mm-hmm. and also got a set of foil Valentine cards from Narnia. Um, <laughs> so Kristen said, "I don't, I didn't know that we had some. Uh, so I didn't know we had a section of Lewis Kitsch." And I said, "Oh yeah, baby, it's here and it's coming." So. <laughs> Um, did did learn some sad news this week. Heard um, from Michael Ward that Priscilla Tolkien, the last of the Tolkien children, passed away at age 92 and uh, posted on my Facebook. I had an opportunity once to bring her some coffee from Texas. Now, I never met her. I left her with Walter Hooper, but I got a lovely note from her a couple of months later, and she said, please don't reveal my address. So <laughs> may she rest in peace and rise in glory, and may light perpetual shine upon her as the family's now reunited. Did it say thank you for the coffee too? Oh, yeah. No, no, no. No, that oh, was good. the main body of the note because she was <laughs> I was hoping it wasn't just like, don't reveal the address. Thank Dear you, Andrew, Andrew, with my return address, don't return my address, <laughs> fondly Priscilla. No, <laughs> it was a very lovely note. And so treasure that. Uh, Blackwell's Books, which is on the Broad Street, right across from the Sheldonian uh, and from the King's Arms, has been sold to, what, um, what is it? Is it Waterstone? Waterstone mm-hmm. Books. So we are hoping that they keep it in its original charm and their rare book room uh, is still there when we go back this summer. So that's about it for me. What about you, Matt? Well, I had a pretty fun last night. So have you guys, has any, any of you guys ever done a murder mystery dinner? Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is my first one. Oh. I have to say, this might become a new thing for me. Everyone <laughs> dressed up. Everyone really got into it. The The priest from the church that I went to came, which was also funny. He's a younger guy, about 30, I'm guessing 35. I hope it's pretty dangerous to throw that out there if he ever hears this. But yeah, it was an absolute blast. So it was just a bunch of young you know, people from the parish that I go to, and I was the victim. Yeah, so that was a fun time. He had a but, killer time last night. Mm-hmm. <laughs> For Matt, it was dead quiet. Oh, oh boy! Oh my goodness, you guys just bringing it. Mm, dad jokes. And you know we're into Lent now. As we're recording this, we're the first mm-hmm. Sunday into Lent, and I have to say, 
I've been, this Lent, as I mentioned, is a lot about going deeper in that interior journey. And it's just been beautiful so far. And so for those who have been praying, I'm just very grateful for that. It's, I, I keep listening to specific podcasts that are around Lent. So the Poco a Poco, Sister Miriam James is doing some with her abiding together. And then Ave Maria Press is doing like this Ave exploring. And it's just been beautiful to hear how many people seem to be lining up this Lent to really bring home the idea that Lent isn't about giving up. Like it's so much more about a journey towards Christ. And it's about going through the desert and encountering him through the giving up. And so I remember hearing Sister Mary James and she goes, and some people just give up chocolate and wine and, you know, that's great, but like that's missing the fullness of what Lent really can be. She goes, I mean, if, if you need to give up wine and chocolate, give up wine and chocolate. <laughs> it's not a bad thing, but it, it seems like so much we've just focused on just the giving up a couple of things and rather than what it's for and where it's supposed mm-hmm. to be going to. And so I just keep hearing multiple different people bringing this up and it's been very encouraging to me of what this journey is. My experience has been really living this out. I know it's only five days in, but (laughs) when you strip yourself of your idols, essentially, you realize the attachments you have and it opens up this bareness and this nakedness with encountering Christ. And Hmm. you really do see the struggle that can happen in your heart, like how attached you are to these idols. And in the, the Lenten book I'm going through, like today it goes, okay, this week is going to be about going into the desert. And that's the whole theme for this week. And so I'm very excited. I pray this will probably be coming out much later into people's journeys, but I pray everyone's Lenten journey is going beautifully right now. Hmm. Well, I just uh, killed two birds with one stone. And for Lent, I gave up drinking chocolate wine. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, you're on a roll. <laughs> well, for myself... I've had a great Lent so far. I've been doing the Pray 40 with Hallow. And I love that. That's been really great. I've really enjoyed it. They're really mixing it up. Uh, and I went to confession to my pastor this week, which was really moving, really wonderful. Definitely one of my top 10 confessions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and But than that, Marie and Alexander come back tomorrow. So I have been not oh. quite by myself because I've got my brother-in-law and sister-in-law and their son in our house, but... At the same time, the house has been far more quiet than it is normally, mm. and mm. I've been able to like starfish in the bed, uh, which has been quite exciting. Oh. <laughs> uh, although I also keep waking up a, a couple of times a night expecting the lady to do something. It's like, no, no we're good, we're good. Is <laughs> <laughs> your sleep? Are you feeling really re-energized? Uh, yes, yes. The first night that they were gone, I slept for about thirteen hours straight. I think oh, that was just oh, my body shit. just crashing. But since then, I've I've been waking up in my roughly normal pattern as to when Alexander would normally wake up. Uh, the mm-hmm. only difference is now I don't have to do anything. I just roll over and go back to sleep. Hmm. I love it. And one little piece of news that I did have, I heard that the next Zenzuk's journal is going to be on the subject of friendship. Uh, so ah. clearly somebody is listening to us. Absolutely. Well, Crystal, if not any, if no one else. <laughs> it was kind of fun, speaking of that, the... the murder mystery dinner last night one of the gentlemen there came up and said are you are you matt from pint for jack because like yeah he goes i could recognize your voice oh no <laughs> like, way hey. that's great yeah so no. shout out uh, yeah so you got called out in in michigan and um, then killed got called yeah and then killed yeah <laughs> uh, he i was, was not the murderer him. yeah uh, it, somebody recognized me in florida once oh yeah you're from pints of jack so yeah, we're, we're spreading far and wide. Well, Kristen and I have given up. We eat every other day. 
Um, so we're doing a kind of a, a 24 hour fast or so, um, mm. every other day so far in Lent. That's um, challenging. And, uh, not too bad. We've, been, we've done a fair bit of intermittent fasting, so we'll, you know, have lunch or dinner and then skip a day and have lunch the following day. So not too bad, but I think that we should start out with a toast. What are mm-hmm. you all drinking today? Well, hopefully we are all drinking the same thing. The Tommy Tool Space Eye Gunlivet 25 year old single malt Scotch whiskey, the only bottle that Matt bought for all of us. <laughs> I, I can't drink, gentlemen. Uh, so I oh, have why tea. not? Oh, that's no. one of my things for this Lent. Okay. Well, we'll drink for you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. <laughs> um, well, I have mine. It's about half a shot. So I'm going to also finish off a bottle of Balvany. Uh, double with 12. I love the Balvenie. I, I actually, that's becoming one of my top three to five scotches. And then I got a little Balvenie Doublewood 17. Set that is the best one. Okay. So, well, this reminds me of uh, the Irishman who went into his pub every Friday and ordered three shots of whiskey. And he said, it's one for me and one for my brother Patty and one for my brother Fergus. And so every Friday, the bartender would set him up with three shots and he'd drink them all. And then... um. <laughs> One day he came up and ordered only two shots on a Friday. And his bartender said, oh, no, I hope nothing's happened to Patty or Fergus. And he said, oh, no, 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 it's fine. I just gave up drinking for Lent. <laughs> so we'll drink on his behalf. So we're toasting Mary Boyle, our supporter. Thank you so much. And blessings for a holy Lent. I pray that this is a time of, of renewal as the days lengthen which is where we get our word for Lent. May also your time with him and your appreciation of God's great love for you lengthen as well. Cheers. 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 Mm. Yeah, that's quite nice. Mm. Uh, You're welcome, gentlemen. (laughs) I I, I gave you the bad stuff because you can't really experience the beauty of the 25 until you've experienced the bog water or borg water, whatever you guys said. Oh, the other borg, stuff. borg water. What was it? What yes. was it? Bog water. Bog water. Uh, the bog was... is the uh, is the loo, is the servicio, the, the um, toilet. Ah, wouldn't yeah. have known that. So, well, we saved the good scotch to last. Um, <laughs> so much like Jesus and his wine. So I drank all of that, and that was so smooth. Dang Such dude. a nice mouthful. This is a sipping one, whiskey. One sip. <laughs> I, it was a sip. So we'll make some space for the others. <laughs> I need another sip. We'll make some space for the other. <laughs> I'm going to start using that. I need to make some space for another glass. That's the um, the hobbits um, filling in the spaces, right? Mm-hmm. Ah. Well, at this point in the episodes this season, I've traditionally offered a recap and a summary. But since we now finished the book, really this entire episode is going to be about recapping and summarizing what we've read. I'm just going to start with an easy question. I've got a bunch of them. What was your favorite part of The Four Loves? I've got five. <laughs> how much, hey, David, how much you want, you want to play a drinking game for how long it takes Matt to say theosis? <laughs> <laughs> Go the theosis it, application <laughs> in this chapter. <laughs> oh, I couldn't choose. I went back to the book, and that's how I always prep for these things. I just skimmed what did I double cross or triple cross or triple star or things like that. And, and I do have to emphasize to the listeners, Matt really prepared for this episode. I've never seen – I did. All of his notes are always in green. I've never seen so much green on any episode, I think, ever. But uh, it's, I, cheers to you. Cheers to you. 
Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's he did one it where you skipped church today. <laughs> I actually did. Well, I'm going at 5:30, but to give myself enough like a 3-hour window to to prep for this, I wanted to just be at a coffee shop and I didn't want to get interrupted and there's a 5:30 and a 7:30 mass and I don't go to. But in all honesty, it's the reason I did more for this one is it takes more prep to bring home a retrospective. I think there's a really powerful chance that the retrospective can be deeper than the individual episodes because you, it's like a highlight reel and it's one tailored to the beauty and highlighting the beauty and the impact. And so I really think these episodes can be powerful. I, they're some of my favorite episodes personally. And the Osis the application of this to me, the quote that I had put here was, man can ascend to heaven only because the Christ is formed in him. Must we not suppose that the same is true of a man's love? Only those into which love himself has entered will ascend to love himself. And these can be raised with him only if they have in some degree and fashion shared in his death. And as you all know from your Christianity, from every episode or from every season, I just find that concept of theos is so powerful in the way that the divine life forming within us in this, this section here of the four loves, when it talks so much about how does the divine love infuse the natural loves, it's it's almost like a theocystic. Is that what I'm making that word up? <laughs> process. Theotic. 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 That's a great one. A theotic process where it's just a transformation that's happening as the divine love gets infused within the natural loves. And so that to me was a really beautiful application of theosis in and something that I can wrap my head around uh, is how that manifests itself. It's not just some fancy trite platitude of, oh, the divine love saves the natural loves. It's like, no, there's a real mechanism here, a tangible one. Hmm. Well, for me, you know, it's this is one of those books that just pays off time after time after time. And so Mere Christianity does the same, and especially towards the end. Um, uh, and so I loved rehearsing again and watching you all um, for the first of the, or, or, or you know, for the first few times that you've read this book. You know, watching and engaging with you all as we've uh, as we're engaging with Lewis's concepts. And so um, those wonderful quotes again and again. Um, when I would slack off, listeners. Uh, from providing a quote of the week in time, David would often comb through and pick several passages as suggestions. And it's just what a, a wonderful reminder of how many great passages there are in this <laughs> book. So it's one of those that pays careful rereading again and again, time and again. Yeah. And I especially love the uh, the charity chapter, um, especially as I'm writing about charity right now. Um, and the, the passage I read at the beginning, the idea of these golden sessions. And as I'm closing up my time here in seminary, I am trying to be very purposeful about arranging golden sessions with those people who I'll physically be away from uh, starting uh, starting at the end of May. So just a, a, this book has been with me on for decades and continues to be a helpful, a wonderful resource. To anybody who listens to our episodes on charity, they should know that I'm going to, of course, go with to love at all is to be vulnerable. That entire mm -hmm. section has always been my favorite, and it remains so. And this is the first time I've read The Four Loves since getting married and having a child. And mm -hmm. it's it, it was wonderful to see that what I knew to be true before, <laughs> I now know in a very different kind of way 
You know, it's the difference between that savoir and connaître, mm-hmm. kind of knowing that Lewis talks about. Uh, I have, For listeners I've, in the United States, uh, it's saber and conocer. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. That's it. In, that's the French and American. But, but yeah, now that I've experienced what it's like to you know, give your life to somebody and bring new life into the world, to see that vulnerability has to go hand in hand with love. And there really can be no other way. And Andrew, what does vulnerability mean? It comes from the Latin vulnere, to wound, to be able to Mm -hmm. be wounded. Um, And uh, a friend of mine compares marriage to crucifixion. And, you know, you get exposed and you get wounded and you do so willingly because the suffering that you do honestly in any relationship, but especially I think in marriage, can be so redemptive. And it's such a deep invitation to get over yourself. As I've mentioned before, we read uh, a book about marriage that compares marriage to a mirror and having this constant mirror in front of you all the time. Somebody always watching, you know, when I eat too much of the dessert or or when I, <laughs> you know, do whatever. Somebody knows and somebody is examining. But to have that person love me, even though she sees me. Um, and to me, that's a just a real microcosm of, of I read it in my, my Bible reading today, Mark 10, where Jesus looked at the rich young ruler and loved him. He looks and he loves. He looks and he loves. There's mm-hmm. clarity and charity for you right there. <laughs> you know, uh, so that was that was actually one of my favorite sections. I didn't write that in at first, but I was listening on a drive back from the coffee shop the first episode of Charity, and I, I reheard that, and I'm like, oh, Andrew, you really brought it there. <laughs> so that's why I remembered it. I also really loved here the garden analogy. Mm-hmm. I thought of all of Lewis's analogies, I had... I must. I mean, I have read this before, but it was back in college, so I never. I didn't remember this analogy, so it felt like the first time I'd ever heard this. You don't and remember the one of- previous episodes we've done. <laughs> college is even <laughs> far more removed from that. That's true. There was actually some joke that we made in the one that I just heard about an hour and a half before recording. This. I already forgot what it was, so I was hoping <laughs> to reference it. It's gone. But the garden analogy, I thought did a really beautiful job explaining the role between grace and cooperating grace in a in an indirect way of just how. Our loves, we have a role to play to tend them, and that's mm-hmm. kind of that cooperation we play. But there's at no point can a gardener claim without the sun, without the rain, without you know, d- divine, without God, that that garden would be able to be maintained. And so I, I really liked that analogy, and I thought it was the perfect blend between the role that we play and the role that God plays. And our role is necessary, but also at zero point can we claim that we could have did it without God. By the way, to add to the brilliance, and I appreciate you pointing out the gardener analogy, but if you'll remember and turn in your hymnals back to your affection chapter, look at how cohesive Lewis is. Remember that he says, the child will love a crusty old gardener who has, who has hardly ever taken any notice of it and shrink from, it, from the visitor, but it has to be an old gardener. And so he places the gardener analogy early on and then sews it into this uh, this brilliant tapestry at the end. Andrew knows one of my critiques coming later, so he's slowly, subtly building an argument <laughs> against it. I love it. I absolutely love it. I'd be remiss if I didn't read my favorite passage here real quick, too. It's, it's, it's like the extension of the John 3.16. Hey, you got the God. reference right. Good job. (laughs) No, he just watched a football game. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're right. Uh, It only took an entire season, David. 
He creates the universe, already foreseeing the buzzing cloud of flies about the cross, the flayed back pressed against the uneven stake, the nails driven through the mesial nerves, the repeated incipient suffocation as the body droops, the repeated torture of back and arms as it is time after time for breath's sake hitched up. I think that's one of the most beautiful descriptions of the love of Christ, the tangibility, the descriptiveness. And so that will stick with me for a long time. And, and when this is probably coming out within a couple of weeks of Easter. A lot of people probably watch The Passion of Christ for Easter. I do. And this, I think, really fits with that. It's helpful, I think, to remember that Christ pushes up on the stake between his feet in order to catch his breath. Most people die, and in crucifixion, most people die of drowning, of liquid gathering in their lungs right? Because they cannot draw their breath. And so he pushes up on the stake in his feet to draw the breath to say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And Mm -hmm. yes, as we look towards Good Friday, that sacrifice of love that he made on the cross sets the tone for all other things. And anyone doing the hallow pray 40 will know that Father, forgive them for they know not that they do. That was the last five days of meditation. What else have you got, Matt? I see a couple more bullet points. Under oh, this dude, section. you're going to let me go through the other ones. I'm, I was, uh... yeah, no, I'm not stifling this ever. <laughs> <laughs> I was cutting. I was like, I was like, all right, I got to just, I can't do all of them. Don't get your hopes uh, up, David. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say we all know about the rivalry between the natural loves and God's love. And so this is just more quote again. The rivalry between all natural loves and the love of God is something a Christian dare not forget. God is the great rival, the ultimate object of human jealousy, that beauty which may at any moment steal from me, my wife's or my husband's or daughter's heart. I think that that plays definitely into a central theme of this book and is a really beautiful way to sum that up. And also something that you guys will be almost certainly talking about in the Severe Mercy Month. Oh, certainly. 100%. My uh, my theology professor, uh, Kate Sonderager here at VTS, amazing theologian, just published her second of three, at least three or four volumes of systematic theology. And she talks very fascinatingly about the primary sin of Israel, which is the sin of idolatry, right? That's mm. the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me, the great rival. And so the challenge, I think, is always to idolatry. The love challenge is that we love God and then get our loves ordered in that right way. I hadn't thought about idolatry as as big a threat as it is, um, even today to us. And if I think of idolatry, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that's that's what in Sister Miriam James's book, Restore, today was about idolatry and our idols. And, and I've been reflecting pretty deeply on what she asks us to reflect on. And I was thinking about what what drives idolatry. And my my connection was the ego, and the ego is rooted in a lack of identity and insecurity. And so when we're insecure, our ego develops for us to, almost for preservation, to win esteem, to win admiration. And the more insecure we are, the bigger the ego we need uh, to overcompensate for that. And the things that we have developed as like self-protective mechanisms to operate in the world become our idols. So if, if in my case, sometimes success or accomplishments can be something I try to, uh, that become idolized. And those to me are the things that feed my ego. And they're the things that I have developed. Other people have different things that they do with that. And this Lent is so much about, for me, and I imagine a lot of people, identifying those idols, 
But then after identifying them, going into that deep spot in our hearts and just inviting the Lord into those. And that's something I'm not as good at is bringing him in and saying, you know, Heavenly Father, uh, Jesus Christ, just come into here and I invite you to heal these wounds, to touch these wounds, to be with, to hold me in this space. And that's so much what this Lenten journey is. I mean, he went into the desert and he did that. And if you think of the 40 days in the desert, it was him getting his identity questioned, if you are the son of God. And so if our idolatry comes out of a lack of identity, the reconciliation of our identity as a beloved is a really good starting place to get rid of those idols. I would describe idolatry as us choosing a smaller, lesser, more easily manageable God. I like that too. It's this disordered love. It's what we've been talking about this entire season. When we take something that is can be good, but the point is it's lesser, and we make that the ultimate. Mm-hmm. And it almost always ends up being easier okay. for us to control. But as we learned in Narnia, he's not a tame lion. Mm. I like that. Well, let's jump to what is always Matt's favorite question. What was the main thing that struck you during the read-through this season? Why don't you start us off, David? But uh, What's going to stay with you for a while? I would say for me, it's pretty simple. St. Paul, he talks about how wide and how tall and how deep is the love of Christ. I think the main thing that struck me this read-through of the four loves, I already mentioned the fact that vulnerability now <laughs> has, has much more flesh on it, quite literally, than it did mm-hmm. the last time I read this. But also how wide and deep is love itself? Because we were going through this slowly, I spent a lot of time thinking about the different aspects of love, what actually love is, love in different contexts. And this might seem a bit stupid, but (laughs) what a deep subject it is. It's not as simple as you first imagined, which was actually the point that Lewis makes in the very opening page. He's like, you know. Mm. God is love. Okay, cool. That's going to be the lens we're going to view all of this through. That'll be fairly simple. But as we saw, particularly as we moved through those early chapters, it's actually not quite as simple as we think. Even in describing love in terms of need love and gift love, it actually gets much more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's actually, I, I'm not going to jump ahead here, but I'll tease it. That one of my criticisms of this is potentially the, the, the lack of clarity. Um, and Andrew's probably already like, oh, I want to jump into this now. But my point, <laughs> but I'm very charitable when I, no, I, I'm very charitable. Just keep, keep weaving your rope to hang, with which to hang yourself. Don't worry. <laughs> Slip that around your neck. I'll be ready for you. <laughs> um, but the reason I, I, I do it charitably when I, when I write it is because I'm not sure you can really perfectly explain love because if God is love, it's near impossible. And actually to claim that it's like perfectly clear, I think would be to claim we can somehow understand God perfectly. And so I agree. There's just so much depth to this. He does a wonderful job taking us potentially as deep as we can go, or at least much deeper than I have gone before. Uh, But to, I'm not sure it can be wrapped up perfectly because that's Mm. like wrapping God up almost. I wanted to make sure I put that in there so it makes it a little bit harder for Andrew to hang me. (laughs) (laughs) A a trifle, my boy, a mere trifle. (laughs) Are you expecting him to say, damn? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Going to this whole whole, uh, love and depth and stuff, and I, I, I think for me, it's somewhat related to Theosis' idea, but I'll phrase it a little bit differently. For me, the big takeaway was the need to crucify our loves. It's a very much great divorcing idea. 
it's a, it's in general a Lewisian idea that nothing. I'm gonna mess this up, but nothing that dies can't be risen or go to heaven. Um, nothing that can't isn't heavenly can be go to heaven. It's it's some like you, you got John three sixteen. I think we should just call it a day. <laughs> Quit while John we're ahead. Twenty forty seven. Unless this grain of wheat falls into the ground, it kind of yes. Um, oh, there we go. That's see, I like it better from there. Scripture. So yeah, that's a, that's a theme that I I wasn't fully aware of with our loves. We knew about it in other aspects of our life. We have to put our vices and our brokenness and kill the lizard and it can become a stallion. But you don't tend to think of that with your loves because they're a little bit more easily mistaken for always a good thing. And so it's a big theme for me that any of my loves, whatever they are, make sure that they are been crucified and risen in with divine love. Nothing that has not died can be raised again. It's so helpful. So It's so beautiful. Um. For me, I think I noticed this time, because I had listened to the audio so much, especially at the beginning of the season, as I read through, I began to notice the bits where Lewis drops off. Now, I know David mm. uh, prefers the audio uh, to the, the, the I don't know if I prefer audio. it. I think it's certainly easier to consume as a whole and have a yep. very clear idea of what Jack is doing if you listen to the talks. Mm. Yeah, no, good clarification. Um, Distinguo. <laughs> Distinguo. <laughs> and I concede. Concedo. <laughs> Thank you, O. <laughs> um, I continue. Think that, yes, continue. <laughs> um, we got to stop before our, our listeners start to barfo. Um, <laughs> or go go. I think that one of the things in defense of Lewis, um, I I go back to that marvelous poem by Joy Davidman where she calls Lewis, my great Antarctica, my newfound land of woman killing frost. And I think this whole idea about finding love, I mean, Lewis says right around this time that he was surprised to have found in his 60s the happiness that had passed him by in his 20s. Love requires you to wrench your life open in order to make space for it. I mean, I can't even imagine, David, how much your heart has had to have grown. I'm not calling you the Grinch, but it's now, I'm sure, you know, six sizes larger than it was before you married and had a child, you know. And Lewis, this is Lewis really beginning to experience all four of the loves, even as he's about to lose one of them as he's writing this book. And so I think that he's grasping at it. And I think that the, in some ways, the book, the Four Loves book is in, in some ways clearer if you do the work intellectually to understand the distinctions. Mm-hmm. And once you do all of the thought categories, all of that mental furniture that he places in our mental rooms really help us to kind of see what's going on. And I wonder if he had, what he would have said about love 10 years hence, you know, if he had lived as long as Warney, he would have lived another 12 years. Um, and uh, what what would he have said after many more years of being married? I know I've made that point before, but it's the thing that I think uh, struck me. Uh, the timelessness of the book, too. It still speaks so freshly. And yes, we've done a lot more thinking about love, and we'll discuss some of that. But um, it still, I think, has this freshness that that is so rewarding to me. I think I would mm-hmm. compare the talks to the book in the same way that I compare The Great Divorce Until We Have Faces. I think there's a richness to Till We Have Faces that is comparable to The Four Loves the Book. There is definitely more there. There are some more ideas being teased out. But I just think that the radio talks are a little bit more accessible in the same way I think you don't have to work quite so hard in The Great Divorce to hit gold. 
But I, I really like the way that you put that. If you put the work in, I think that you know, this book is mm -hmm. is richer, which is why, and we mentioned it a, a few episodes ago, this is the book that I'm going to be writing. It's not going to be a, an annotated edition, but it will be more akin to a commentary, kind of like the one that Dr. Ward did with The Abolition of Man, mm -hmm. where I'm going to do sort of what we've been doing on this podcast, providing a high-level overview of each chapter so people can follow through through the arguments and then have all of the references, kind of like the ones that we see on louisiana.nl, uh, so people can understand the references because he packs in way more references in the book than he did in the radio talks. Yeah, you know, I think that you have to, you don't have to work as hard to strike a precious metal, but I would say that it's silver and not gold. Um, I think that you, you we have don't have to throw silver. out our silver to make room for gold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I think that he's aiming towards something that really gets completed in the 50s that he's kind of struggling towards. And yes, mm. there's richness everywhere, especially in the great divorce. But I, I think that the richness that he gets to until we have faces. And if I'm right, Four Loves is a retelling of this, and I am right, and it is. Um, I think he gets more to the heart of the very soul of, of people, pun intended, psyche. So, but yeah, no, your point, your point is well taken. And, and I think that um, much like with St. Paul, we have to grow up into full maturity, and we should move past milk and, and come on to meat. You know, I, I think that there's something so chunky in both of these books, till we have faces in the Four Loves, that... Um, that requires, I think, a fair bit of life and a fair bit of understanding of theology and our own our own selves and a fair bit of Lewis in order to fully kind of grasp it. Mm. The one final thing I was going to point out in this book was the danger of love. It really highlighted, we've witnessed this a little bit in The Great Divorce, the in some of the ghosts, the danger that uh, love, when it becomes disordered, can go. But here it became very clear. Every single one of the four sections, he very explicitly points out the way it can go wrong. It's something that's usually always connotated as a good in secular society. Love is shown that it's not. It depends on how it is in proportion to God. And so in the same way with The Great Divorce, I walked away from that, honestly, with a an awareness, but even maybe a fear of living life doing my will be done you know that if i had to do the great divorce it's thy will be done versus my will be done like there's only two types of people mm -hmm. you know this one there's something very similar to that with the loves is my love in danger of being made an idol or am i doing a good job crucifying it i, I had probably a little bit of scrupulosity after the great divorce and i probably do hear a little bit too you almost can develop scruples a, scruples is scruples. that what it is yeah there we go. That we word. Some scruples. <laughs> yeah. um, because I was, you can also get, you don't want to go through life afraid where every decision you're like, is I doing thy will be done or my will be done? And here you don't want to spend every time you're loving, constantly questioning yourself. And so the whole theosis idea, I think, tampers that and lets you recognize that. Tempers don't it? be afraid. Tempers it, tempers it. Tamper, temper, temper. temper. I'm learning so many words today. This is great. Hey, this is uh, Tolkien. I'm giving Tolkien a run for his money. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, I think that's, that is another thing here. The danger of love, but don't be afraid. Recognize that uh, the divine love through just giving yourself over to Christ and focusing on that every day. It's almost like when you get out of the boat like Peter, it's when you take your eyes off Christ, you start to sink. So you just keep your eyes on Christ. Your loves will be okay. And mm. don't overthink things. Keep loving him. The solution isn't to love keep less, but to love more. Yes. Perfect. There, there we go, David. <laughs> well, speaking of love, one of the things that 
we brought up was the fact that he doesn't really define love in the text. He mm-hmm. he does inadvertently in the radio talks. So any thoughts as to the why he does this? And also, how would you define love? I'll start with this because I've already somewhat alluded to this. I think he doesn't perfectly or neatly is the word you use in the question. Because of what I mentioned before, God is love. And I'm not sure we can have a super neat, or if it is neat, it's overly simple definition of God. And so Lewis knew that this topic is very deep. And so to be perfectly neat would almost be to be putting God in a box, I feel like. And so with that said, I'm not sure I can answer what love is, but I feel I can say nothing is love if it isn't in relation to capital L love. And love is only love in relation to capital L love. I'm not sure what you want to take with that or make with that, but. <laughs> so you're telling us what love is not. That's exactly right. You, which you, is, you're, which is. You're um, being ap- apophatic. Exactly. Yes, negative theology. Yeah. I don't think that Lewis gives a neat definition because I don't think that there is such a thing, right? Um, so he talks about gift love and need love and appreciative love. He talks about likeness by approach, likeness by nearness, affection, friendship, romance, and he doesn't even really go into sex, and charity. You have a go at, at coming up with a definition that isn't self-defeating. Um, and I think to that go he wisely- out of oneself into another. Yes. <laughs> it's a <laughs> good thumbnail. It's, it's a good one. I could also point to Thomas Aquinas. He said, uh, it is to seek the good of the other as other. So as themselves, not in relation to you. Yeah. And uh, I know Dr. Lapoyavi, he's got his, his own definition that's sort of along the same lines. He just emphasizes the appreciative aspect of love. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I think it can be done. And I, I do think this is a little, at least a little deficiency in the work. At least he should explain why he's not trying to define it. And maybe it is just to prompt us to ask the question. You should see Andrew's head spinning right now. He's processing. He's (laughs) thinking. I can just tell. This just gets into the real, the the deep questions that this book doesn't actually ask, even of itself. What actually is love? When we're talking about these different kinds of love, are we just talking about the same thing in different contexts? And in the final chapter where he's talking about the relationship between the natural loves and supernatural loves, that I would have liked fleshed out a little bit more because I'm still not entirely sure. Are we talking about the same thing? It's just it's now supernatural, superpowered, or is it of a different type, or is it simply a matter of degree? Hmm. Well, I think part of it here is what Lewis says at the very end. It's the last paragraph. And with this, where a better book would begin, mine must end, right? I think that it's an opening salvo on discussing these things. And if love is the center of the universe, is the, if the love of God is the center of all things, um, I don't think that we'll ever, even after thousands of years and eternity, plumb the depths of the love of God. And so to me, it scratches the surface, it opens up, it rends open in some ways, some of those old wounds like he talks about in the great in, in weight of glory. Um, but I think that his role isn't to define love. And I think that he'd be a ludicrous madman if he thought about doing that for all time. And so I think he does a great job at describing and forgoes the, the, the temptation to, to define. define. <laughs> um, well, you see, I'm yeah. going to compare it to, say, the Trinity. We can define the Trinity, but we recognize necessarily that we are also on the threshold of mystery. Therefore, what we can say about the Trinity is true, 
but it doesn't even come close to summing up all that the Trinity is. And I would say the same is true for love. I 100% agree with that. That's exactly sort of what I was getting at, that it's it's impossible to probably do. Uh, I had to read Augustine's book on the Trinity, and he gives so many different ways to describe the Trinity, because all of them are incomplete in their own way, mm-hmm. but each of them teases out a different piece. But there was no single direct one way that's just like, boom, Trinity, this. It's like, no, it's it's like this in this way, but not this way. It's like this over here in this way, but not this way. And all you can do is through little bits and pieces, start piecing together a picture. And then through what you can't say, you can say things as well. Well, and that's what I was getting at before too. I mean, if the Holy Spirit is the love between the Father and the Son, which is what the theologians say, then we're playing with the very person of God when we're trying to to understand love, especially as we have imperfectly experienced it and expressed it. And so mm-hmm. when we get to the shorelands, of the great things of God, we are making mud pies in a slum. Um, <laughs> so mud pies in a slum, of course, is a way to glory, but Lewis's an analogy in Mere Christianity where he says that theology is thousands of people standing at different places on both sides of the ocean describing their part of the beach and what they can see in the waves and their passage, right? Mm. We shouldn't be able to even begin to scratch the surface of all that the ocean must mean. And in the same way, especially if love is intrinsic to the nature of God, and we know that it is, then it should be necessarily hard. We should find it humanly impossible to fully express what's going on here. And so that to me is a great comfort that Jack doesn't um, essay an attempt. I think he'd be a madman to do it, and nor we. But he also brings it back in the penultimate paragraph. Is loving God, is it easy to love God? It is for those who, who do it. And so the challenge of this book is not to understand. Hopefully the challenge is to love better, to love our families and our country and our friends and our lovers and God more. And that, I think, is a fine task for Lent. My final question that I had, and we're going to put a time limit on Andrew. <laughs> where, In what other Lewis works do you see some of the ideas in The Four Love expressed? Honestly, I kind of want more unhinged Andrew here. I think this is <laughs> Andrew Loose. It's every yeah. <laughs> Loki and un- Andrew Unbound, like Loki Unbound. Um, it's everywhere. Lewis begins writing about the three natural loves in the 1920s. He enunciates all four of the loves in a letter to Warney in 1940. And literally, it's what I'm writing my essay about. He's talking about love all the time. And especially if we think of Zenzuk longing joy as the signpost towards love, right? The pointer of the pointer out of love, as he says in in Surprised by Joy. Um, you don't you won't have to give me too much time. What I'll say to our listeners is you will find this love everywhere in Lewis. My favorite example today, because that's the paragraph that I'm writing, is that Lucy has vision because she loves. Lucy feels pity for Tumnus and for Edmund, and it's her love, it's her selflessness that allows her vision in the very opposite way to how Orwell's selfishness blinds her. Um, Lucy, uh, when Aslan famously says, courage, dear heart, that word courage comes from corday. It means heart. And so at the heart of all things is love. Courage, the, the heart of courage is love. And so if I'm right, and I am, 
<laughs> Lewis is talking about love everywhere, even if it's the lack of love. So you can take this four loves framework and then go back, read everything. You can back read um, to, to, to the great divorce, to screw tape letters, and you can find that everything is an explanation or a, uh, a repudiation of what Lewis is saying here about love. Hmm. If I had to pick one quotation from Lewis's best book, The Great Divorce, I think I would choose this one. That <laughs> <Mr>. Take it. <laughs> Take it. Excuse me. <laughs> Excuse me. Allergies. Bless you. Allergies Bless to you, Andrew. <laughs> McDonald says, there is but one good, that is God. Everything else is good when it looks to him, but bad when it turns from him. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really nice summing up of what Lewis speaks about with regards to the supernatural love infusing and supporting the natural loves. You know, God made everything and it was good, and it remains good as long as it's still looking at him, and it goes awry otherwise. Mm-hmm. And the same is true of us ourselves. I'm not going to bring into Narnia books. I haven't read them all, but I would have to imagine it's all throughout the Narnia books. Mm-hmm. But with, with The Great Divorce... That concept, everything has to be crucified before being raised up to heaven. The whole lizard concept. I mean, the whole process of that that transformation that's occurring as you walk up with a mountain, ascend the mountain with the help and the grace of the angels, is that transformation that needs to happen with our loves, divine love, uh, transforming the natural loves. And it's probably a painful process. In mere Christianity, I even thought the heavenly and hellish creatures, there was an overlap. I mean, our loves are either going towards God as they submit to God, or going away from them is they're put on a pedestal as they literally, they say, as they become a God, they become demonic. That, that's like going, our loves can be moving towards and moving away. And uh, the screw tape letters, I really thought of that virtue is so big in there and habits and the role that that plays in taming the loves. We go back to that garden analogy. We, he, there's that part in the very beginning of the, of the chapter where he mentions there's something sort of like decency or common or good. And he's referring to virtue there as a very important part with the natural loves. And uh, till we have faces, I don't think I need Wait, to Wait, this say has something to do there. with till we have faces? What? <laughs> Wait, I better take a drink. <laughs> well, and, and listeners will remember perhaps from my interview that it was understanding that till we have faces was the four loves in novel form. I am old now and have not much to fear from the anger of gods. I have no husband, no child, nor hardly even a friend through whom they can hurt me. So what he's doing is writing the undoing of the four loves as expressed by the selfishness of Orwall. And um, here is the kind of the positive image of that negative picture. And once I understood that the four loves were the framework holding up all of Lewis's books, not only did I start to understand Toya Faces, it helped understand everything else. And as I was thinking about other places where this is dealt with in Lewis's corpus, I actually came up with a bit of a strange one, uh, Out of the Silent Planet. There mm-hmm. you get to see about patriotism, although the patriotism in this case is of the human race. Mm-hmm. I think it's the same same process, the same thinking that's being applied, and it becomes demonic in a very similar sort of way. You know, assuming, David, that I'm understanding how you're flowing through these questions, that the one we're, that we've skipped, we're fully skipping. Thank you for saving us a, the, the conversation around the deficiencies. <laughs> <laughs> that well, question I, got skipped. <laughs> I've, I've, I've just been following the flow of the conversation. So let's turn back to some of the, uh, some of the earlier ones. <laughs> uh, we, won't, we won't do that one. We're going to save that one to last because 
our, all of our friendships might disintegrate when we address this question. So let's let's deal with a listener question first, because Bud, he submitted a request on Patreon asking us to pick some biblical characters and their relationships as illustrations of some of these loves. Let me go last, because mine... Mine are biblical, but they're a TV adaption of scripture, <laughs> but they really are perfect. So mine are a little bit cheating. Well, go ahead, David. And you had a list of many of those that, that I saw as well. Yeah, well, I think the first first one that really springs to mind is David and Jonathan. Here is Philia, probably the best friends of scripture. I, th- I think I'm going to give, give them that award. Mm-hmm. One fun one is Eli and his wayward sons. If you remember, they were priests and they were terrible priests, but Eli refused to rein them in. And I actually thought this was a wonderful example of love going bad. Mm-hmm. That he actually isn't loving his sons and he isn't loving the people that he is called to serve by allowing them to continue to abuse their position. And it, it actually flies in the face of the biblical example of Aaron and his two sons who offered strange fire. And I think that you could read Moses's life with a whole lens of those loves, right? So his wife and his father-in-law, and you've, so you've got uh, Eros and, and Storgi there, you've got his sister and his brother, um, and his brother in some ways acting as a friend um, to him. So there's a filial relationship, I think, between Moses and Aaron. Um, and he's grappling with the very divine love of God. So you can see all of those relationships kind of going on. I don't know how well, how deeply the Bible portrays friendships. Apart from David and Jonathan, none of, no really explicit uh, examples come to mind. I'm sure my listeners, can, our listeners can correct me uh, because I stand in need of that. Um, but I think that you can read through the, the the whole of the Hebrew scriptures and kind of place these loves in their categories. Mm. And Lewis has a, a thought as to why philia is less well represented in scripture. Um, but if we're, if we're talking about the other loves, we naturally have to talk about Jesus Christ because there you have all of them. He was friend to sinners. He said, I call you friends. He had a mother with whom he was very close. Uh, and he had a kind of love that took him to Calvary. That you also see these people falling all over themselves to read Eros into some of those relationships. They try to read Eros into the David and Jonathan relationship, mm-hmm. um, and they try to read Eros into the Mary Magdalene and Jesus relationship. Many, many people have done that. That's, that's Sam and Frodo. Uh, <laughs> yes. Um, sure. Well, speaking of Eros, mm-hmm. the, the the one I think probably most obvious Eros example. Actually, there's probably two: Adam and Eve. Because he mm-hmm. spends his day going, naming the animals, you know, hippo, giraffe, ant, and then he sees a woman and then he starts spouting poetry. At last, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. <laughs> see, Matt, this is why you need to learn poetry. Keep telling you. Yeah, I was uh, waiting for that. <laughs> but the other example is, is uh, David and Bathsheba. Now, mm-hmm. the motivations of David aren't exactly clear. I don't know if we can necessarily tie them directly to Eros. But here we see one of the illicit loves that Lewis talks about. Mm -hmm. Not that Eros itself is illicit, but it is an illicit Eros love. But we see the wreckage that comes out of that when the preservation of that relationship is held uttermost. Well, and the twisting of the loves that goes on when they get excessive, right? When I put love in the wrong place or when I give the wrong amount of value to love, it 
did will quickly climb onto the throne and become a demon. So I think you can see that in romantic or in erotic relationships all throughout the scriptures. Now, Matt, you want to talk about the chosen? Let's do this. Yes, and I have to say, have have you seen it all, David or Andrew? Yeah. Yet? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, all Both seasons. Awesome. So. I love it. Listeners, again, if you haven't seen it, it's one of the things that I bring up from time to time because I just it's brought tears to my eyes in way too many episodes that I can count. But I really love the, just generally speaking, I have a few specific ones, but the friendship of the apostles. And honestly, probably more the story of the apostles. You know, they become sort of a family unit and you see the banter going on back and forth. You see some of the pettiness, the competitiveness, but then you see them there for each other also at certain points in time. And so I think there's a really beautiful dynamic portrayed with the apostles. From an agape perspective, one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie is after Mary Magdalene goes astray and goes back into some of her old ways and drinking and, and gambling. And she just feels so much shame that she she's just unredeemable. And the love that comes through Peter and Matthew and then ultimately through Jesus Christ is a very agape type love that I saw, thought was incredibly beautiful. And then in the Nicodemus by the well, after he got to know Jesus, and he can't say yes to God. So I thought this was an example somewhat of a disordered love, almost like he, hmm. he chose his wife in that over the relationship with Christ. And he just couldn't get there 100%. And, and it wasn't that he loved his wife too much. It was that he couldn't quite love Jesus enough. Hmm. And you see the weeping happening. I love that scene. Hmm. And then the very final one is between, it's it's not really portrayed a ton, but between Peter and his wife and the way that she essentially gives him up almost, like she's still there, but like in a sense it allows him to turn to Christ and Christ be the number one. It's like the right ordering. When you have the wrong ordering with Nicodemus and his wife, you have the right ordering of Eros with Peter and his wife. Hmm. Maybe there's an echo of the relationship between Bardia and Ansett there. There you go. Take a drink. <laughs> that <laughs> that in order in order for her to really have Peter, she had to have him have his order his loves ordered correctly, right? Ooh. And so she probably had more of Peter when he gave himself to Christ than she would have otherwise. Well said. <laughs> I'm going to connect that one to a severe mercy at there some point. There you go. Well, let's yeah. let's stick with scripture a little bit longer because Bada also asked us to comment on some of the great love passages of the Bible, like. 1 Corinthians 13, which you've heard at every wedding you've ever been to, or Ephesians 5, 21 to 33. Now, tell us more about your argument here, David. Okay, so Lewis begins by saying that in Greek there are four words for love. There's actually more than four. And if you look at the biblical usage of the words that he gives, storge, philia, eros, and agape, they don't actually fall into quite the neat neat little categories that he gives us. Uh, And at the time that this episode will come out, I will do a solo Skype session where I will work through an article that was produced by, he's now at the Augustine Institute, I knew him when he was in San Diego, a theology professor where he looks at the Greek usage of, in particular, philia and agape. And he's just underscoring the point that at least from the biblical point of view, you can't, it doesn't draw quite the same associations with these terms at least with this level of clarity that Lewis presents. So, for example, in John 5.20, we read, For the Father loves the Son. Now, how does the Father love the Son? If we were to take what Lewis has said exclusively, we would think, well, surely that's got to be agape. 
But that's not the word it uses. It uses filio. So the, for the father, filios the son and shows him everything that he himself is doing. Now, you could try and argue, well, the highest doesn't stand without the lowest. So, of course, the father loves the son with Ophelia as well as Agape. But I think we shouldn't push that too far. To me, this this isn't a problem at all. Lewis is talking to us about love. And this really gets back to the, the question that we've wrestled with throughout this show, throughout the season. What is Lewis doing? And he's inviting us to think about love. And he's therefore creating some categories. Some of them have a historical and, you know, in terms of classical antiquity, they have uh, mm. precedence. But some of them he's making for himself and defining for himself. And I think that's totally fine. Because the point that I think he's trying to do in this book is not to give us necessarily a systematic understanding of love, but to create some sketches to force us to think about love. And as Andrew loves to say, to help us to love better. Not a systematic understanding of love, but a categorical understanding. I too did some work and spent some time in the Anchor Bible Dictionary today. And one of the distinctions that Lewis is making is that the Greco-Roman world really had no use for agape at all. Hmm. And so it's the Judeo and especially Christian world that use agape. And so Lewis is, I think, kind of motioning towards the fact that Christianity really grabs this idea of agape mm-hmm. and defines it. It's not a very well-used word in the Greco-Roman world. And mm-hmm. Christianity really invests, and especially Paul, it really invests it with interest. There's not a lot of agape in the Gospels. It's mostly in, in the writings of Paul. But for me to offer not just one category but offer four categories of love, and then to talk about appreciative love and need love and gift love and how we get near and how the approach and the likeness and all the rest. These are really helpful things, and they really benefited my my relationships because I stopped expecting people who were only occasional friends with whom I shared kind of more surface things to share as much or to go as deep or to want to hang out as often as those who shared those things that were core with me. And so that really kind of helped. And in fact, it, it helped me in my uh, in meeting Kristen. I mean, at that point, I had been alone and single for many, many years. And when I met Kristen first for coffee and, and lunch, I, want, I like a good meal. That's a philia thing. I like talking about Narnia. That's a philia thing. Uh, the fact that she was incredibly attractive and intelligent, that was that was helpful. But I thought, you know, I'm on my way to pick up my aunt at work um, in Florida, and at least I will have a, a very pleasant philia lunch. And we had that right away, and we still continue to have that, but there was so much more. To be able to recognize what was going on, what I was looking for, and to set up those expectations, um, I think was a, an act of charity for everybody with whom I've been in relationships <laughs> since I've read this book. And that's the big strength of it. It gives us a taxonomy, a language. Mm-hmm. I don't think it even needs to be exhaustive. I don't think it even needs to be what he does define us. I don't think even that needs to be set in stone. What he's giving us is a set of tools to begin our investigations into understanding what it means to love. Where a better book would begin, mine must end, mm-hmm. right? And so he himself is saying what uh, the marvelous band over the Rhine says, we're all just beginners when it comes to love. And that's, that's a comfort for me. And Lewis, I think, admits the same himself. Well, let's, let's drag it back to the actual question that we were asked, though. <laughs> the, the love passages in scripture. Uh, is there anything that we make of them anew now that we've read or reread the four loves? 
when I was going through the Corinthians one, I mean, so much of it is about pointing out how worthless stuff is without love. And it really made me think about the idea of how worthless natural loves are without love. Uh, in this case, capital L love, divine love. It really struck the importance of everything being in relation to capital L love. And that's where things get their meaning. And that's when things get their purpose. And that's where things are redeemed and held up to what they were meant to be. That that concept came through very much in the Corinthians. Yeah. And to tackle the Ephesians passage and not to tip my hand at too many of the sermons that I'm sure I will be giving over and over again, <laughs> the governing verse for these is submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so the governing love is Christ's love for us and our response to submit to one another. And so this attitude of submission should prevail throughout the church. Now, I know that everybody's fond of quoting Ephesians 5.22, wives submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, but that should happen after we submit to one another, and that should happen after we spend time revering, reverencing Christ. If I'm having my quiet time and I'm in right right relationship with God, I'm probably going to be more close to the kind of man that my wife would have no trouble submitting to. So if I get my priorities right... And it's it's the highest doesn't stand without the lowest, but it's also Lewis's uh, fantastic essay, First and Second Things. And when I put first things in the place of second things, it's going to go wrong. And so I think that mutual submission out of agape love is the place to start for us all. Mm. But we've been agreeing too much, and we're nearing the end of our time together. So I think I've already said what I wanted to say about where I think this book could have done with a little bit more polish, um, or the reader could do with a little bit more help. Matt, what do you think? So I've actually somewhat already answered this too. I'm not sure. Yeah, it's it's a clarity, but again, I've already mentioned that I'm not sure it was possible to have the clarity because just the nature of the topic, to have a neat, clear, simple definition of love, I don't think would be a definition of love. And so, uh, yeah, do I leave wanting more clarity? Do I leave wishing... If a listener came up to me right now and said, all right, you just spent 30 weeks. Well, I guess this is episode 31 and we do two a week. So more like 15, 20 weeks going through the four loves, you should easily be able to tell me very neatly and cleanly the definition of love. And I, I can't. And is that kind of frustrating? Yeah, <laughs> it is. Uh, can I apply to different circumstances and topics if I hear them and go deeper in them? Absolutely. And so I'm really thankful for that tool. But I'm not, so I'd actually be curious if any listeners are hearing this and they're willing to take a stab at that clean, neat definition. It would be really fantastic because I am still slightly disappointed that I don't have that clean, neat definition. Uh, So I I guess that would be the one thing I would say. Now, one minor quibble I might have with this is I think some of his tangents potentially in the beginning might have, when he's talking about politics and things and, and this love of nature, I, I just felt like these tangents were not necessary per se to the understanding of the section. It dragged me down a good bit. Um, I was glad to get through them. And so I guess from that perspective, but that's just a personal opinion. <laughs> well, get him, Andrew, get him. <laughs> <laughs> so I will say what I wish that it, that there was 
what the what Jonah asks about the gaps that there are in the book, and I mentioned it before. I would have loved to have heard Lewis's reflections after several more years of living with Joy Davidman, right, and finally having love and and living with love. Um, I think that he, I think that in some ways he would have doubled down on much that's here, but I think that he would also have clarified. Um, I would have loved to have heard him reflect more than he does here in. Uh, a little bit in Toya Faces and, of course, in, in Grief Observed about his married experiences. And I think that he and Joy could probably have written a really interesting book about love if they wrote that in 1970, um, let's say. Um, I think that the, the clarity question is a bugbear, and I see this happen in class all the time. When we read difficult things, much of what the reaction papers that we're supposed to, you know, share with each other is about is how difficult the reading was. Mm. And for me, reading Lewis was a liberal education. And I learned how to think by trying to understand Lewis. So Matt, I bet you dollars to donuts that the next time you read through, especially those first chapters, knowing where chapter six is heading, I think the next time you read through, it'll be a lot clearer. I think that Lewis's arguments really give us these tools. And I think that you would having read the later chapters, see why he spends so much effort to establish those categories and those tools in in our heads. Um, this is certainly a book, I think, that bears uh, several rereadings and repays them. And so I might, I don't know, I'd never thought about this before today, but I wonder if maybe I would suggest that people listen to the audio first. That would absolutely be my recommendation to anybody that wants to read The Four Loves. Start with the talks, get excited about love, get a, a, a few little nuggets of gold that he passes out there, and then come to the text, because that was also the order in which he produced them. This is publication order versus chronological order all over again with Narnia. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he does develop them. Yeah. That's, that was exactly the point I was going to go to. He, he develops his ideas, and I think it's clearer in the same way that when you have seen trees growing, you can then connect the oak and the acorn much more readily. And you can see sure. where this came from and that his, th his thought process and even how it developed in the intervening time. Yeah. The whole liking and likings and loves for the, for the subhuman. That mm. chapter makes a whole lot more sense once you know where he's kind of going. And then again, I would read them in partnership um, because some of what Orwell is trying to do at the end of Till We Have Faces is make sense of her four loves. <laughs> I wish I could drink right now. You're killing me. But she is trying to, she's trying to write in Greek about the loves. I wish that somebody would, as a senior it's project Greek to me. Uh, in, in a classical <laughs> education, um, would translate um, the, the, the four loves back into classical Greek, because I'm pretty sure that that's the language that Lewis composed it in, in his head. And I, would, I wonder what um, he would use for the words for love. Mm. And so, um, yeah, I, I think that at the end, she's trying to kind of make her way in writing Greek, analyze what she has done with love and finds that she has betrayed love all the way along. In fact, I think that her loves were so young that she didn't know what conscience was for herself, to borrow from the epitaph. <laughs> so uh, I think that she does, but only at the end of her life. And then Lewis, kind of like Arnon, maybe tries to sort it out in his later book. Mm -hmm. Well, I would love to ask you, Andrew, what is the definition of love now? If someone came up to you and like, because they know you're so not, you've read so much on this book and, and, and until we have faces, like what would, how would you answer it now? I think fundamentally his shorthand from the, from the talks to go out of ourselves towards the other, 
right? And it echoes what he says in mere Christianity, out of ourselves into Christ we must go. So this fundamental forsaking of the ego, the forsaking of myself, like he says in mere Christianity, I must seek, love is seeking the very best for, I'm getting it wrong, but must seek the very best for, for someone else, right? Even if it's an enemy, the other. right? Mm-hmm. So to go out of myself is the first move. And then to go towards the other is the second move. And those are the common qualities of all of the loves. There's a fundamental humility and self-forgetfulness in love. And there's a fundamental prizing or valuing of the other. And that twofold exchange, I think, is mm-hmm. as close as I'm going to get or Lewis is going to get to a working definition. And then I think the rest is just kind of how that work all works out. That seems to line up very beautifully with the gift love side of it or the supernatural gift love side of it. Mm-hmm. How would you tie that definition to the need love? You know, to go out towards the other sounds very much like the gift love. Like, And, and, I, lo- and I love that. It's a really clean Have you ever been definition. in love? When you saw your girlfriend, did you go towards her? Augustine, he, he gave the example of nuts. He says, if, you've got, a, if yeah. you've got lots of nuts, it's like children of the town. They will just come to you. Who is making them come? None of them. They see something that's good, in, in the case of a woman, beautiful, and are naturally attracted. One of the fundamental things that we all need is to be loved and to see the human and hear the human echoes of the divine love for us. Um, and so I think that although, yes, going out of myself towards the other is gift love, but that matches the need love in the other. And we see it, I think, even in the friendship of the three of us. You know, we, as Beekner said it, we loved each other for how we filled each other's needs, right? And in a friendship, we find these places where not only can I have an opportunity to give, but I can have an opportunity to receive, and I don't even have to really break it down mechanistically and try and find it. And so, yes, my responsibility for how I am to love is to go out of myself towards the others. If that's the only thing I do, that doesn't, that's not love. That's codependency. That's disease, right? I'm going to disagree with that. I, I, hmm. think, I think it's fine, uh, but it still has to be ordered because it, to go out of myself towards another out of need, that is still at least recognizing the fact that I am not enough by myself mm-hmm. in the same way that a natural love isn't enough. It's not self-sufficient. But if that's the only thing that I'm doing... If I'm only going to fill somebody else's need, mm-hmm. and if I'm not getting my own needs met, mm-hmm. right? Um, if if I put myself in a in a position where my only value is how I fill everybody else's need, well, then I end up in purgatory like those characters in The Great Divorce, and then I despair because nobody needs me. <laughs> so it, it's like the poems at the beginning of the charity chapter: "Love is enough." It's not. It's not. <laughs> so if I go out of myself. Because I realize I'm not enough, then that is is good. But what is better is to realize even the the person that I'm going out towards, they themselves are not enough. That they need Christ. So there's there's a natural ordering of loves, but it begins with me rejecting the first step, which is my own selfishness. Lewis says he writes a poem to Joy Davidman as she's dying, in a po- marvelous poem called "As the Ruin Falls." Mm-hmm. And of course, I know I have to admit I know it because Phil Keggy said it to music many years ago, <laughs> but. Uh, I'll read it as if it's not singing a song, but but reciting a poem. All this is saying it, saying it. (laughs) No, 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 no. No, we want our listeners to go up, not down. And our Patreon gifts to increase, not decrease. (laughs) This is a special Patreon fund to get me singing lessons. 
All this is flashy rhetoric about loving you. This is Lewis to Joy. I never had a selfless thought since I was born. I am mercenary and self-seeking through and through. I want God, you, all friends, merely to serve my turn. Peace, reassurance, pleasure are the goals I seek. I cannot crawl one inch outside my proper skin. I talk of love. A scholar's parrot may talk Greek, but self-imprisoned always end where I begin. Only that now you have taught me, but how late my lack, I see the chasm. And everything you are was making my heart into a bridge by which I might get back from exile and grow man. But now the bridge is breaking. For this I bless you as the ruin falls. The pains you give me are more precious than all other gains. And this is Lewis's final statement as Joy's dying all that selfishness that he sees, and how little he has gone out of himself towards her. But even so, it makes it one of the great love stories of the 20th century. <laughs> and like definitely my poem. favorite poem. Matt likes a poem. Favorite. Yeah, that was a good one. Wow. I understand that one. That was quite good. <laughs> well, I think we have done some good work here today, gentlemen. And I wanted to wrap up by reading something as well. I wanted to read one of my favorite sections from St. Augustine's Confessions pretty much throughout this entire book, uh, mm. because it very naturally echoes both that we have faces and the four loves. Augustine prays, Late have I loved you. O beauty ever ancient, ever new, late have I loved you. You were within me, but I was outside, and it was there that I searched for you. In my unloveliness, I plunged into the lovely things which you created. You were with me, but I was not with you. Created things kept me from you, yet if they had not been in you, they would not have been at all. You called, you shouted, and you broke through my deafness. You flashed, you shone, and dispelled my blindness. You breathed your fragrance on me. I drew in breath, and now I pant for you. I have tasted you. Now I hunger and thirst for more. You touched me, and I burned for your peace. Hmm. And with that, I hear the last call bell. Thank you all so much for joining us on this journey through the four loves. We'd like to thank you each individually, but we can't do that. So we will just thank our top tier Patreon supporters. Emmy, Thomas, Deborah, Anony Mouse, Bill and Joanna, Snort, Bud, Shane, John, Kevin, Brian, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate, Peter, David, and Rowdy. And although we're now done with the retrospective, we're not actually quite done with the four loves or the subject of love. Because on Thursday, I'm going to be talking to Dr. Love himself, a repeat guest of the show and fan favorite, Dr. Jason Lapoyavi. I've got the good doctor to do something of a love clinic, uh, where we'll be talking not only about various elements in the four loves, but also asking some of the broader questions about the natural loves and charity. So please join us next time. When we'll be going further up. In further in. Cheers. 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 Cheers.